I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 4. And we're only going to read a couple of verses of this sermon preached by the Apostle. And Peter is preaching here, filled with the Holy Ghost, speaking to the rulers and the people and elders of Israel. And it says in verse 9, If we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, that is the man who had been healed uh, there by the power of God through the apostles. And you remember he went walking and leaping and praising God. If we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which is become the head of the corner or the chief cornerstone. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The Islamic faith has a familiar presence in most Western countries today. That's why there is a specific particular interest, perhaps in your heart and mind, concerning what this faith espouses, preaches, and believes. But you may not be aware, you certainly will be by the end of tonight, that the Muslim Islamic faith is an evangelistic faith. Now, not in the purest sense of preaching the good news of the evangel, but it is a faith that seeks to proselytize. It seeks to win people to its belief. And in that sense, it is evangelistic. And we see this in this quotation that you'll see before you tonight from Salem Azam, who is the chairman of the Islam Council of Europe. And he says this, the first objective of the Islamic Council is to assist, support, and supplement the activities of Dawah, that is, mission, Islamic mission, the attempt to convert people to the Islamic faith right across the globe. And that is the first objective of the Islamic Council, and he belongs to the General Islamic Council of Europe. Now, if you can remember back to the 1990s, you will recall, perhaps, that nominal Christians, uh, both in the Anglican Church and also in the Roman Catholic Church, we're told that this would be the decade of Christian evangelism. But as we look back on the 1990s with the gift of hindsight, we would do well to ask the question, who was evangelizing during the 1990s? And indeed, who is evangelizing in our present day and age in which we live? Because across the United Kingdom, once buildings that were used in Christian worship are now inhabited by Muslims and have been turned into mosques and are now worshipping the God Allah under the Muslim banner. There is a great influx of the Muslim faith in the United Kingdom. This picture before you on the screen is Regent's Park Mosque in London, which is now the home of one of the largest mosques in Europe. It is estimated that there are now 2 million Muslims in the United Kingdom there are probably just over 200 mosques in the UK also. 
On a daily basis, there are 22 million copies of Muslim newspapers that are published. Two million Muslims, 22 million copies of their writings in newspaper form. And that, in anybody's estimation, is a sign of very good health. And of course, they are in good health because we now live in what is commonly called a pluralistic or multicultural society. And although we welcome anyone to our shores, and that has to be said because we don't want to be misconstrued as being in any way inciting racial hatred, that is not what we are doing. We are analyzing, critiquing a faith in relation to what the Bible has to say. But we have to be alarmed and astounded at the inroads that this religious philosophy and Muslim faith is making on the institutions of our life here in the United Kingdom that many, many years ago were founded upon the Word of God. I'm going to show you a little video clip just now. Uh, And this video clip is of one of uh, the first, I think it was the first Baroness admitted to the House of Lords, Baroness Udin, the first Muslim woman sworn in to the second house, the House of Lords. And uh, she swore in under the name of Allah rather than under the name of God. And you'll see her explanation of it and her swearing in. As the first Muslim to enter House of Lords, it was very, very important that I was able to say, in the name of Allah. I, Paula Manzila, Baroness Uddin, do swear by Almighty Allah that I will be faithful and bear true allegiance to Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth, her heirs and successors, according to law. So help me God. Now, the Muslim Council of Britain has now co-opted a man called Joe Ahmed Dobson, who incidentally is the son of Frank Dobson, who some of you will remember was the former health secretary in the Labour government. And he is now a converted Muslim, and he has been opted to chair the Regeneration Committee for the British Council of Muslims. In other words, to to forward this evangelism thrust to regenerate Islam in the United Kingdom. And a new study was done by a man called Yahya, formerly Jonathan Burt, who is the son, incidentally, of Lord Burt, the former director general of the BBC. And he did this study, which uses a breakdown of the latest census figures to conclude that apart from the immigrants that are Muslim in the United Kingdom, 14,200 white indigenous British people have converted to Islam in the last while. 14,000 indigenous British people converting to Islam. So it's not just Muslims flying in from Arab countries that are bringing this faith to our shores, but people are actually being converted in the United Kingdom. And at times, some celebrities and very high-profile people in the world of politics. There are approximately 1.2 billion Muslims in our world tonight. Now, to understand that, you need to compare it to those who are called Christians and Of course, we mean nominal Christians, those who name the name of Christ, whether they're born again or not. And there are approximately 1.9 billion Christians in the world today, broadly speaking. 1.2 million Muslims beside 1.9 Christians. Now, it has to be said that although the Muslim faith purports to be one united religion, there are certain sects in it, just like many other faiths in the world. You may have heard of the Sunnites. 
the Shiites and even the Sufis. And these are sections, and there are many, many more, of splits within the Muslim faith. And incidentally, the Quran actually condemns such divisions, yet nevertheless they are there for all to see. But the Muslim faith as a general religion is moving on in massive strides in our world and in our land, so much so that it has been predicted and projected that by the year 2025, a third of the world's population will belong to the Muslim faith. In fact, by the year 2010, it will be the second largest religion in the United States. And tonight it is the second largest religion in the whole of Europe. It is the fastest growing religion in our world today. Now can I just say before I go on any further, that that should be a tremendous challenge to us as Christians tonight. Those who we believe do not have the truth, but have error, are taking their false message and spreading it right across our continent, right across our nation, across the whole world at a staggering rate. And we need to ask ourselves, we who have the truth, what are we doing with it? What are we doing in relation to missionary efforts and giving to the mission field and going to the mission field? What about our lives? We need to examine our lives in the light of the word of God and ask ourselves why we're not making the impact on our nation that Muslims are making in this very day and age in which we live. I wish I had longer to spend on that. But what comes out of such a challenge to us is the question, why is there such an explosion of the Islamic faith in our nation and across Europe? I'll tell you why. And part of it's our fault, I believe. When Muslims look at Christians and the Christian religion as a whole in the United Kingdom, you know what they see? They see an institution which they regard as being filled with homosexual depravity in the priesthood, filled with misconduct, hypocrisy, division of all sorts of sects and denominations, and they conclude that there is no truth, there is no power or merit in Christianity in the West. And you know what they see when they look at us? They see a mission field. They see a country that is ripe for conversion to Islam. Conversion to a faith that will stand up for what it believes. A faith that is black and white. And that's why there are supposedly a thousand missionaries trained every year that are thrust out of Islam right across the world to evangelize people for Allah. Can you remember the excitement when the Berlin Wall fell down? The Iron Curtain was dropped. Communism was defeated. What were the Christian missionary organizations doing? They were all excited. Let's get the Bibles in. We've been prohibited for years. Let's get in there and preach the gospel. No one knows how long it will be till the Iron Curtain comes down again and the walls are built. Friends, tonight, we need to waken up in our own land and realize that we're living in a similar situation. There are people out there and they've no thought of God, but they're crying out for meaning in their life. And one of these days, somebody's going to come along and knock their door from a confusing cult or false religion. Maybe it'll be a Muslim and show them their way and they'll believe it. What a challenge to us tonight. What are we doing with the truth of the gospel? And these Islamic countries are becoming increasingly zealous. And of course, what we are most familiar with just at the moment, which is perhaps not so characteristic of the general religion as a whole, is the troubling growth in extreme 
and militant strains of fundamentalist Islam, Osama bin Laden, suicide bombers in Jerusalem and right across the Arab world and even infiltrating now our world here in the United Kingdom, it would seem. And there are more countries in the Middle East now that are run by Islamic regimes, most of them wanting to reintroduce what is called Sharia law, which is simply Islamic law in its most extreme forms. Among other things, Islamic law demands that a person caught in adultery should be killed, should be executed. And if you're found to be a thief, they take your hand and they chop it off. That is Sharia law. But there are other Muslims who believe that Sharia law should be universally imposed upon the nations of our world. They think all countries should have a complete rule of Sharia Muslim law. And that's why Muslims are moving in and infiltrating into every nation as we speak and seeking political power wherever they can. Now, not all Muslims are of that strain, but particularly the fundamentalist type wants to infiltrate nations with Sharia law and the Muslim fist of iron. Now, of course, one of the major catalysts for fundamentalist Islamic faith today is the the zeal against the re-emergence of the state, the modern state of Israel in the 1940s. I don't have time to go into all of this this evening, but save to say that the word of God clearly says that Israel were God's chosen national people. That Abraham's son Isaac was the son of promise. But the Islamic faith believes that it wasn't Isaac that went up with, with Abraham to Mount Moriah and was almost sacrificed, but it was his other son of Hagar, who was called Ishmael, the father of the Arab race. And they believe he was the one who had the promise. He is the rightful inheritor of the land. And so there is this struggle over what they call falsely Palestine, which is the land of Israel. And they believe they inherit all the promises that are rightfully Israel's in the word of God. That is a major aspect uh, that, that contributes to fundamentalist Muslim thought today in our world. But another is the backlash against Western secularization. You see, Arab lands are getting a lot of dollars because we're buying oil off them. And because we're trading with them, sometimes Western influence can infiltrate their society and their culture. And, and fundamentalism is a backlash against that to get back to Muslim basics in a way from Western secularization. Now, those are two things, only minor things that can contribute to, if you like, the major strides and the forward surge of the Muslim faith in our world today. Now, the Muslim faith has a universal appeal and message. And it is refreshing to many to hear certainty coming from religious preachers in our day and age. And we have to say that as we'll analyze it tonight, that the Muslim faith has a very simple creedal statement and the tenets of their doctrines are simple for anyone to understand. And it is not a racial religion. In other words, you're not born a Muslim, like you're born a Jew. Anyone can join what is called the Ummah, the community of the faithful. There's no racial barriers. And therefore, that's the reason why it has spread so quickly. And it's very easy becoming a Muslim. It's spread particularly in our modern age through the black uh, African countries. And, and more recently, in the United States of America, through preachers like Louis Farquhar, who is of the nation of Islam. Now, many Muslims would not associate 
with Louis Farquhar, but nevertheless, it shows how accessible the Muslim faith can be to anyone of any race, whatever color, whatever creedal background or religion they may come from. But the fact of the matter is this, and we must maintain this, and there needs to be a voice, a political voice today to articulate this. Whilst we welcome anyone of any faith to our shores, and we defend, and I say this again, we defend their right to worship their God in their own way. We have to say that many of these faiths do not invite the same liberty to Christians in their lands. And tonight, in Muslim countries, there are Christians laying down their lives because of the faith of the gospel that they will not deny. Christians are being killed. Preaching is outlawed. Missionaries are being expelled on a continual basis from countries. While Muslims are intent in all their lands of freedom to spread their message of their gospel by jihad, the sword if necessary. Now let's look tonight at the origins and the beliefs of this faith of Islam. Of course, the founder of Islam, you will already know, I'm sure, was Muhammad. He was born in 570 AD uh, and lived in Mecca, his home. He later moved to Medina because he was driven out of Mecca. But nevertheless, Mecca is now the center of that religious faith. It is the Mecca, and that's become a euphemism for the center of any faith or any religious belief. And Muhammad believed, as he was akin to going out uh, into the wilderness and particularly going to one cave, that on one of his visits, as he meditated and as he contemplated religious thought, that the angel Gabriel appeared to him. And this was the initial appearing that would continue for 23 years after that. And the angel Gabriel, no less, gave this command to Muhammad. Recite in the name of the Lord who has created Created man from clots of blood, recite, seeing that the Lord is most generous, who is taught by the pen, taught man what he did not know. Now, the Arabic word for recite is the word Quran. We spell it in English K-O-R-A-N, but uh, the transliteration is Q-U-R apostrophe A-N. That is the noble book, the holy book, the Bible, if you like, of Islam. So Muhammad was told to, to write down what God was reciting word for word to him. And Muslims believe that the Quran was written down by God on tablets in heaven and came down and then was recited uh, uh, to Muhammad and he wrote it all down. But his interpretation was not in it. Human agency was not involved. And so uh, Muhammad was given these revelations of God that were never given before to men. The astounding thing was that the original growth of the Islamic faith was akin to its growth even today. Within a century of Muhammad being given these revelations supposedly of God, within a century Islam conquered an area that was greater than the Roman Empire in its heyday. Within a hundred years. And today Islam is almost right across the globe, as it were. It's going into countries and places in the major continents of our world, particularly at this moment into some dark communities in Africa. It is the sole religion, really, of the Arab nations of our world today. Now let's look tonight at the doctrines of Islam. Some say there are five. Um, there really, I suppose, are six. And we look at them very briefly tonight. Very simple. First of all, 
There is one God, and that one God's name is Allah. One true God, and his name is Allah. There is not a triune Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, all-seeing, all-knowing, all-powerful. Then a second doctrine is that of angels. Angels are particularly important to the Muslim faith, and uh, you can see that when you realize that the chief angel, Gabriel, was the one who imparted this knowledge and appeared to Muhammad and gave him the rules and regulations of this faith. There's also a fallen angel in the Muslim religion called Shaitan, which is very similar to Satan, as you can see in the pronunciation. The third doctrine is out of Scripture. You might think the Quran is the only holy book in the Islamic faith, but it is not. They believe in four inspired writings. The first is the Torah, that is the first five books of your Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, from Genesis through to Deuteronomy. The second is the Zabur, which... For us, is the Psalms of David. They believe that God inspired those writings. The second is the Injil, I-N-J-I-L, which is basically the gospel, entitling the whole works of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, our Savior. And then the fourth book is the Quran, Allah's final word, his final revelation that was given to Muhammad via Gabriel. For 23 years, Gabriel dictated to Muhammad in that cave the Quran. The fourth doctrine that underlines the Muslim faith is the doctrine of Muhammad. The Quran lists 28 prophets of Allah, including Adam, Noah, Abraham, and even our Lord Jesus Christ. But of course, Muhammad is the last of the prophets, and he is seen to be the greatest of them all. And then the, the fifth tenet of belief is the end times. They believe that the dead will be judged. They will be resurrected, and Allah will judge them. And those who are righteous will be sent to heaven. And heaven is a place of sensual pleasure where there will be supernatural virgins. And you know and you've heard why some of these young men blew themselves up in suicide bombings. Because they believe they're going to inherit some kind of world with 70 supernatural virgins. That just continue on in virginity. And they'll have this sensual sexual pleasure for all eternity. Because they're serving Allah. That's their heaven. Those who are unrighteous, and that simply means those who oppose Allah and Muhammad, they will go to hell to be tortured forever. The sixth tenet of the Muslim faith is predetermination or predestination. They believe Allah has predetermined everything by unchangeable decrees. Que sera, sera, whatever it will be, will be. Now, the word Islam gives us a little insight into the practices of the Islamic faith. The word Islam means submission to the will of God. The word Muslim comes from that, and it means one who submits to the revealed will of God. So to be a holy person and to follow God in his revealed way is to submit to God's will. Now, in Islam, you submit to God's will through the five pillars of Islam. These are important to remember. If you fulfill these, and if you remain in the Muslim faith, and if you sincerely repent of your sins, you will gain perhaps Jannah, which is heaven. It is a salvation of works. What are these five pillars, these five religious practices that you have to be involved in to perhaps be saved? The first is this, the declaration of the faith, the shahada they call it. And the declaration of the faith is simply the proclamation, a verbal confession, there is no true God except Allah, and Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. And you've heard perhaps Muslims saying that. 
There is one true God and that is Allah. And his true prophet is the prophet Muhammad and there is no other. That is the declaration of the faith. The confession of the faith. And you need to practice this every day and say it over and over again. The second pillar uh, of Islam is simply prayer. Salat, they call it. And you would have seen pictures of many, many Muslims praying and kneeling on the ground and praying devoutly to their God. And Muslim prayer involves confession of sins, which begins, first of all, with the purification of the body. They ritually wash themselves, and it ends eventually with the purification of the soul. And they have strict religious rituals laid down on how to purify the place where one prays, how to perform one's ritual, the washing of the body, and so on. And even the exact movements and the exact words of the prayers themselves. And the final act, you will remember seeing it perhaps in the media, is to bow down and for your head in prostration of prayer to symbolically bend in submission to Allah with your forehead touching the ground. Now that is to be performed as a second pillar of Islamic practice five times a day, morning, noon, and night. Let me show you a little video clip of a young Muslim boy. This is tremendously touching. And he tells us a little bit and shares with us how he prays. And then there's a little explanation about why uh, Muslims face a certain way in order to pray. This is Rizvan. Rusvan is 10 years old and every day he says his prayers. He prays in a language called Arabic. He always uses exactly the same words and exactly the same movements. And he always faces in exactly the same direction. Rizvan isn't the only one who prays like this. There are hundreds of millions of others. They're known as Muslims, and they follow the religion of Islam. There are Muslims in almost every corner of the world. Uh, it was just to show you the mass of people bowing down in this act of salat, this act of prayer. Now, the third pillar of Islam is that of fasting, sa'um. And uh, that is done in the month of Ramadan. You may have heard it or seen it written in your diary. And that is the month of fasting, the month of Ramadan. And there's no drinking, eating, or sexual relationships during the daylight hours of the month of Ramadan. Now, you can eat as much as you like and drink as much as you like when the sun goes down. But during the daylight hours, they observe this fast. The fourth pillar of Islam is that of alms, charity to the poor. This is very important because Muhammad was an orphan himself and valued charity greatly. And then the fifth pillar is that of pilgrimage, a hajj, as they call it, to Mecca. Some of you may have seen Mecca uh, in photographs, but it's absolutely astounding. And if you look at that picture, you will see this black cube in the center. It is called a Kaaba. And that reputedly was the temple of idols. 
in which Muhammad went and found Allah to be the chief god of the idols. The Meccan people believed and worshipped many, many idols, and the chief of the idols was Allah. Muhammad decided through this revelation by God that there was no other gods. These idols were all false, except for one, and that is Allah. And so he founded the religion of Muhammadism, or, or, or the Muslim faith, Islam. Now, each Muslim is encouraged to make the pilgrimage to Mecca at least once in their life if they are able physically. Uh, Whether If they're sick, they don't have to do it. But nevertheless, if they can afford it, and if they're able to do it, they're meant to do it in the first half of the last month of the lunar year. Now, I don't know whether this video clip's going to work. It's unfortunate if it doesn't, but it shows you the extent of what people do and uh, how, how they get to Mecca and what they do when they do get to Mecca. A person who visits a holy place is called a pilgrim and every year Muslim pilgrims come to Mecca from all over the world. The pilgrimage is known as the Hajj. Some of the pilgrims come by boat. Some of them fly into Mecca by plane. These people have traveled overland by bus. They've come from Jordan. Some are rich, some are poor, some are young, some are old, but all are bound for Mecca. For most of them, it is a long, hard journey, and they are only expected to go on it if they can afford it. Many of these people will have spent their life savings to come here. last they arrive at the Kaaba, still the center of Mecca, just as it was in the time of Muhammad. And each of the pilgrims will walk seven times round the Kaaba. Those who are too old are carried on stretchers. Mecca is the heart of Islam. Muslims turn to Mecca every day when they're alive. And they even turn to it when they're dead. These are Muslim tombs. And as you can see, they're all facing in the same direction, towards Mecca. Thank you. You got the gist of that, didn't you? The multitudes of people flocking to Mecca and worshipping their God in this way. Now, it might appear uh, at just a casual look at the Muslim faith that there's quite a lot in common with, with Christianity. The fact of the matter is... Many people believe that the Muslim faith worship the one God that we worship as Christians and as Jews, Allah. And Allah is just an Arabic name for God. But the fact of the matter is, at a closer inspection, you will see very clearly that that is not the case. The Muslim God is not the Christian God or the Jewish God. Now, if you were to compare two £10 notes this evening, one a genuine and one a counterfeit, how would you decipher from the genuine and the counterfeit? How would you locate the difference which was genuine and which was false? Well, what you would do is, first of all, you would not concentrate on the similarities. You wouldn't look for the similarities because, obviously, they would be the same and you could not tell that which is false from the similarities. They look alike when you concentrate on the similarities, so you concentrate on the differences because it is the difference that will show which is genuine. Two genuine notes will have no difference. So when you home in on those things which are counterfeit, those things which are different, you see that those things are difficult. 
to counterfeit in the genuine sense, to take what is true and to make a counterfeit of it when it is not found in that particular religion. So what we're asking tonight is, what is missing from Islam that proves that it is a false faith? What is missing from the Islamic faith that we say that it is not truth, that it's different from Christianity and it's different from what the Bible teaches? Well, here's the first and most obvious thing. The God of the Bible is missing from Islam. The God of the Bible is not found in the Quran. Now, I alluded to this little box here in the middle of the stadium in Mecca. And, of course, I told you a moment or two ago that that Kaaba was full of idols. And Muhammad came along one day, and he rejected all the other idols, and he chose Allah as the chief God, uh, and he named this as the one true living God. But what most Muslims do not know, or at least will not admit, is that the name Allah existed before the Muslim faith was founded by Muhammad. Now, this is very controversial, but nevertheless, I feel it's so important because the name Allah is found in its origin in polytheistic paganism. Now, one of the chief tenets, the first one of the Muslim faith is there is one God and only one God and his name is Allah and his prophet is Muhammad. But the fact of the matter is, if you go back far enough, historians and archaeologists prove this, you will find that the name Allah was found as one of many, many gods, even in this Meccan temple. In fact, according to the Encyclopedia of Religion, I quote, Allah is a pre-Islamic name corresponding to the Babylonian god Bel, B-E-L. And in fact, much ancient worship included the worship of the sun god, the moon god, and the stars. And in fact, the worship of Baal that we read of in the Old Testament was a worship of the heavens like this. But many scholars have now pointed out that in the Arabian world, the sun god was female and the moon god was male. And he was called by various names, but one of the names by which he is called is Allah. And Allah was married to the sun god. And they had three daughters. And these three daughters were viewed as high deities above all other deities. So you can see what's happening here. Muhammad took away the other gods and chose Allah. But Allah was not the true and living God. He was the chief of many gods. In fact, the Encyclopedia of World Mythology and Legend says this, I quote, Along with Allah, they worshipped a host of lesser gods and the daughters of Allah. Close quote. In fact, archaeologists have dug up numerous statues and hieroglyphic inscriptions in which a crescent moon was seated on the top of the head of a deity, symbolizing that they wore the moon god. Do you know that the religion of the crescent today is the religion of Islam? You see it on top of their mosques. You see it on some of their flags, the, the crescent and the star. And I believe that that is the origin of that symbol. And if you want to read more about that, there's a very interesting book entitled The Islamic Invasion by a man called Robert Moray. But apart from this, the God of the Bible is not the God of Islam simply because the God of the Bible is a God of love. You will not find the God of love in the scriptures of the Muslim faith. Allah, as we find him revealed, cannot love the sinner. 
You will not find in the Quran a love for the sinner or, or a love for the ungodly. It is missing. In fact, what God does in the Quran with sinners is he cuts their hands off. He stones them to death. It is a religion of law and not a religion of grace. The fact of the matter is, although in Islam, Allah is called the forgiving, the merciful, the all-compassionate. You will not find one instance in the Quran where he exercises that power to have compassion over, for instance, one who is caught stealing or one who is caught in the act of adultery. Yet we find in John's gospel that the Lord Jesus had such compassion in one caught in the very act that the Pharisees, the legalists, were going to stone. Our Savior is a Savior who demonstrated the love of God in that while we were yet sinners, John 5 and verse 8, Christ died for us. Christ died for the ungodly. That is a gospel of grace, unmerited favor. You will not find that in Islam. In fact, you'll not find it in any other religion but the Bible, Christianity. What you see before you on the screen tonight is John 3 and 16 in Arabic. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And also the verse 17, God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. The heart of God is a heart of love. God is love. But a God of love is missing from Islam. That's why we would have to say that the caricature that is often painted of Islam is a hateful religion. It is a religion of the sword. We have to be careful of general caricatures, but nevertheless, that is the aura that emits from that, that, that religion in the West. Because the God of love is missing. The second thing that is missing from Islam is the Christ of the Bible. They do not believe in the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. They do not believe... He is the incarnate Son of God, as John 1 verse 1 says, as John 1 verse 14 says, that he was God manifest in flesh. As John 10 and verse 30 says, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself saying, I and my Father are one. Of course, the Pharisees and religious scribes were going to stone him because he, being a man, was trying to make himself God. Now, the Muslim faith will go as far to say he was a prophet, and he was a sinless prophet at that. But he is not the son of God. And he is not the savior of the world. In fact, anyone they say who calls themselves God or equates their prophet to be God is committing blasphemy. Indeed, committing the unpardonable sin. Friends, this evening the Bible clearly says, and it's written on every page of the New Testament, that Jesus Christ is God's son and God the son. God manifest in flesh. The word of God incarnate. This is what the Quran says in Surah 4, 171-172. Speaking of people of the book, that simply means Christians are Jews and they have a measure of respect for Christians, not so much Jews today nevertheless, but Muhammad did originally. People of the book, go not beyond the bounds of your religion. The Messiah, Jesus, son of Mary, was only the messenger of God and his word that he committed to Mary and a spirit from Allah. So believe in Allah and his messengers and say not three. In other words, a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. God is only one God. And not only does the Quran deny 
the triune Godhead, but it actually denies in places, it would seem, that the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross. Sarah 4, 156 to 158 says, It was made to appear so that he died on the cross. Some Muslims believe that God caught him up before he went to the cross. Or God caught him up on the cross. Others believe that someone else was crucified in the place of the Lord Jesus Christ. By mistake, some actually believe that Judas Iscariot was crucified in place of the Savior. Others believe that, yes, he was on the cross, but he did not die. Can I turn you for a moment to 1 Corinthians 15, if you would? 1 Corinthians 15. And here we have the revelation of the Apostle Paul. Revelation of God to the Apostle, verse 3. This is the message the Corinthians were saved by. Verse 3, I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins. He died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas then of the twelve. After that he was seen above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. Verse 17, And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins. This is the message that God revealed to men and it was preached by the early church. And it is the message that Christ died for our sins, rose again. And if he didn't die for our sins and rise again, we are still in our sins. Christ is still in the grave. And we are all lost and damned for all eternity. But praise God tonight, it is an historical fact that he died, he rose again, and we are saved. And it is Muhammad that is in the grave. The Christ of the Bible is not the Christ of Islam. Muhammad also believed that Jesus Christ foretold his coming. That is Muhammad's coming. He called himself the Ahmad and that is believed that when the Savior talked about a paraclete in John's gospel, that he was talking about Muhammad and not the Holy Spirit. In fact, some Muslim traditions even add that Christ is to come again, but this time he's going to marry and he's going to have children and he's going to break the symbol of the cross and acknowledge Islam to the world. The third thing that is missing from Islam is the salvation of the Bible, or we could call it the grace of the Bible. For a Muslim's sin is lack of obedience to God's law. Lack of obedience to Allah is sin. But they do not have a sense of sin as having a need to be forgiven because we have an inherent sinful nature. You see, a Muslim is sinful only by an act or by the lack of that act. But he does not see himself as a fallen creature, as a sinner by nature. As Romans 3.23 in the Bible says, that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, take this on to its logical conclusion. If they don't see themselves as inherently sinful by nature, then they conclude that they do not need a saviour. That's why they don't recognize Christ as a saviour. Because they don't need redemption. Redemption from an external source is not needed. Why? Because I can get salvation through following the five pillars of Islam and believing the faith and the doctrines and tenets of it. 
So salvation in the Islamic faith is earned by legalistic system of obedience. And one day Allah will hopefully outweigh your bad deeds with your good. And you'll get into Jannah, into heaven, whatever that may be. Hopefully. But who of us, who of us can outweigh the good over the bad? And especially when the Bible reveals that that is not what God requires What God requires of us is to believe in the Son of God who was sent from heaven. The gospel of grace that he delivered to us through his death and resurrection. That gospel that Paul preached in Ephesians 2, 8, 9 and 10 where he said, It is by grace you are saved through faith. That not of yourselves, not of works, lest any man should boast. It is a gift undeserved. Let us never lose this. And I'll tell you, you don't hear it preached too often these days, even from evangelical so-called reformed Protestant pulpits, that there on the cross, our sin by imputation was laid on Christ. And by faith, his righteousness is exchanged for our sin. And he imputes by grace in the act of faith, his righteousness in us. That is the gospel. But it's missing from Islam. Can I ask you a couple of thought-provoking questions at the end of this message? It's applicable to a Muslim if he's here or she's here. It's applicable to a member of the Baha'i faith or a Buddhist. It's applicable to a Jehovah's Witness, a Mormon. In fact, any of these particular labels that we've used over these nights. You know why? It's applicable to anyone who's not a Christian The first question is this, who is Christ? The Bible clearly teaches that Christ is the Son of God. He is God the Son. He is the Savior of the world who died, rose again, and is returning to judge the world and will reign on the earth for a thousand years and then commit those to hell who have disobeyed him and those taken to the eternal state who are in obedience to him in the gospel. Is that the Christ you believe in? Not a prophet, not a good teacher, not a good man, but the Savior of the world and the Son of God? Here's another question. Do you expect to go to heaven? Most people say, I don't know, I hope so. Listen, the gospel of God's word is simply you can know that you're on your way to heaven. That's why Jesus came and died and rose. That's why the word of God was given, that men might be sure. The only way to be sure is through Jesus. Do you have tonight the assurance that he will accept you? Listen, don't make the mistake of thinking he'll accept you because of something that you are or something that you have. The only way that God accepts a sinner is when a sinner pleads by faith his own son. You need to identify with the work that he accomplished on the cross. You need to identify yourself as a sinner and put your hands up and confess. Say, Lord, I'm guilty of everything that you've charged me with. Jesus wasn't guilty of it, yet he suffered for it. And I thank you for that. And I trust that is sufficient to save me. And I ask that you'll give me his righteousness through his death. Save me now. You have a low view of yourself and a high view of Jesus Christ and his grace. Because if you don't, my friend, you can't be saved. And there's no other way. There is no other way. And if there has been... A motto verse for this series over these ten weeks. Surely it has been this one from the very words and lips of our Lord Jesus. John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by 
me. Will you not take him tonight in the work that he has accomplished for you on the cross? But Christian, can I end with a challenge to you? Look at the millions, yes, billions that are in darkness tonight. And I end with the question I began with. What are you doing about it?